Hey listeners, please support the Business of Pharmacy podcast by checking out our sponsors at bizofpharmpod.com. That link is in the description. You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Layla, for those that haven't come across you online, introduce yourself and let our listeners know what we're talking about today. My name is Dr. Leila Hambeck, and uh, I'm a pharmacist by profession, and I work as the chief executive of the Association of Independent Multiple Pharmacies, which is an organization representing family-owned businesses here in England and Wales. Today, we're going to be talking about the um, state of community pharmacy in England, and I'm going to be taking you through some of the challenges that we're currently facing in our sector and uh, the way forward in terms of like where community pharmacy in, is heading in, uh, in England. Leila, I suck at geography, but I know looking at your past, you maybe went to Finland for pharmacy school and something else. Where oh. did you bop around in your history and what is your hometown where you grew up? I grew up in Finland. Um, I was part of the Swedish-speaking community in Finland, going to school um, in Swedish-speaking schools. Um, and so when it was time to go to university, um, I moved to Sweden, to Uppsala University, to complete my studies in, um, in pharmacy. I graduated as a, as a pharmacist and started practicing as a pharmacist before uh, moving to the UK in 2004 and uh, progressing my career here. What brought you to the UK? Well, when I was um, in Sweden, we used to get regularly approached by UK companies um, who were looking for pharmacists. And um, I'm married to um, a German. And so it was kind of, we were thinking at the start of our careers where we should be um, settling and where we should be taking forward our careers. And so when this opportunity came up in, in England, then we had a discussion, okay, is it going to be Sweden? Is it going to be Finland? Is it going to be Germany? Um, and then we decided, why not, why not go to England where we both, you know, nobody has an upper hand and uh, we can start fresh there. Well, I have a German background. So your husband and I have you outnumbered now two to one. So it's good you're <laughs> in a neutral England at this point. Good. <laughs> you see, that was one of the reasons. Neutrality. <laughs> Lil, define to me multiple independent. It almost sounds like an oxymoron, but it's not. It's a pharmacy business that's owned more independently, but they have more than one pharmacy. How do you define that with your terms? So when we talk about independent multiples, we, we mean... Um, organizations that are owned independently, um, but the owner has more than uh, one pharmacy. But in our case, our membership allows um, those who have more than three pharmacies mm. uh, because we believe that um, when you have uh, more than two or three pharmacies, then your business setting changes in mm -hmm. that you will have uh, a head office function, for example, um, you will need other pharmacy pharmacists to and, and um, pharmacists to work for you. Yeah. Um, and so the business model changes, and hence, whilst it's independently owned, when you have multiple branches, 
you are kind of um, in that sort of head office category. We just have one pharmacy. My dad had a number of them, but um, we just have one now. And I just have one now. And it seems to me that with two pharmacies, you can kind of still run it as one. The pharmacist in a emergency can kind of bop back and forth and you share maybe some employees and things like that. Three, maybe, but three to four, then you really start having a different business model, it seems. And you can have that different business model with two, but you certainly have to have it as you approach the handful of pharmacies. Yes, that's that's right. So um, whilst these pharmacies, pharmacy groups are kind of multiple, but they always have that sort of independent ethos in them, that mm-hmm. sort of family business. Um, and the business model obviously changes as, as you described in that um, you kind of develop, um, you, you know, that, that sort of head office function in that people will have, for example, similar standard operating procedures. You will write it for your branches and then you need to have, um, you know, various um, staff members in various yeah. branches responsible for um, different tasks. Um, and so things kind of develop in that in that sense. But one thing that I have noticed is that that sort of independent ethos remains within these family businesses, no matter how big they get. No matter how big they get. Is there a number that just doesn't make sense anymore that's outside of your group? Or in theory, if it's still owned by a family or a person, no matter how many they have, it still has that ethos of being the independent feel. Yes. So we have, for example, within our membership pharmacies that uh, the owner you know, has about over 250 pharmacies. Whoa, and really? That, <laughs> wow. Yes, yes. And, and they are part of that independent, independent group. And you asked um, where, where we draw the line in that, you know, there's really not, there's no line as such there. Um, it's how the business identifies themselves. And I think one thing that we um, go by generally as sort of a, a rule of thumb is that we also have national multiples, like for example, um, Walgreens Boots, and we've got, um, for example, um, Lloyd's or um, some of the supermarkets that do have pharmacies. And so they are kind of um, in a different category in that they're kind of, they're kind of more of a corporate operation. Um, and so, um, y- you know, while some of them, for example, some of the supermarkets may have lower branch numbers than some of our members, but the distinguishing factor there is that, you know, how they feel they are. <laughs> so um, our members are independents and that's how they identify themselves as. So when you say we have them, you mean in England, there are such groups and they're not a part of your group because they start to have that corporate feel to them. Yes. So in England, there are different categories. So we've got the single independents, um, then we've got the pharmacy groups, and then we've got the the national um, multiples, the, the corporates as such. Um, so the corporates are represented through a, a different 
organization uh, called the Company Chemist Association. Do you guys have like softball tournaments against them and stuff? <laughs> Are you friendly with them or is that just a totally separate No, group? of course. I mean, it's in the best interest of community pharmacy in general for all of us to work together. So we do have, um, you know, whilst there are many differences in terms of like a business model, uh, like for, for example, when you look at uh, Boots, for example, they've got a huge um, health and beauty um, part of their operation. When you look at, for example, um, Asda or Tesco, the supermarkets, um, they've got obviously that uh, food and grocery element to their um, operations. So the business models are, are different. However, we do have quite a, a lot of commonalities as well. So we try to kind of focus on those commonalities when it comes to our approach to, um, you know, negotiating with the government, discussing with the government and, um, and, and so on. What's the worst part of your job? What's the worst part of your week? Like an <laughs> hour of your week that either gives you the most angst or you just don't look forward to it. What is that? We do have quite a lot of challenges at the moment with, within the world of pharmacy in, in England. And one of the biggest challenges that we've had for a number of years is that lack of recognition. And I think it's it causes quite a lot of, um, it, it, it makes you feel bad when you are not appreciated as a sector, as a profession. And when you have that feeling, it, it kind of loads of other bad things, you know, fall out from that in terms of like, you kind of, you know, what we don't want to happen is that it would it would have some sort of a knock on effect on on people's confidence of of people wanting to pick a pharmacy and study pharmacy and and you know being proud of our profession and our sector, um, and so that recognition is 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 for me something that we need to really work on gaining, not because obviously of the, uh, you know, we we we. We've done everything we can. I mean, the, the sector is in the eyes of the public is is very high up, particularly during the pandemic. Um, what we did during the pandemic, what our teams did during the pandemic was absolutely brilliant. And, and this was kind of pharmacy across the world, really stepping up and leaving the doors open and and being right at the forefront of um, of everything, of health care. But unfortunately, um, sometimes the uh, those decision makers in position of power within government or, or within the civil service don't necessarily see it that way. And um, it, it's fighting for that recognition um, that, that gets sometimes very frustrating. Um, and also we have been for many years suffering from a huge lack of funding. Um, for those um, who don't know much about the, the, you know, how pharmacy operates in, in, in the UK, well, over 90% of our activities are um, NHS focused and NHS funded. NHS is a national health service. And so we're very much dependent on the fees that we receive from the, from the government for um, patients to be able to receive medicines free and receive services free. So that kind of, um, that funding not being there for so many years has left a lot of pharmacists struggling with cash flow, with financial. Um, issues and particularly now, Mike, when we're seeing the cost of living rising, um, and you know everything you know is is going up apart from the pharmacy funding. So a lot of businesses are finding them finding themselves in a very difficult position at the moment. The article that you posted that you were quoted in, and it was saying just that that 
costs are going up, you know, especially now they're going up. So something that was fair, even not, not that it was, but even if it was fair three years ago, it's not fair now because everything is going up and pharmacies going down or staying the same. Yes, exactly. I mean, I hear you ask me about what is the worst thing in my week. Um, it's when I get those phone calls from people saying that, Leila, did you know I had to remortgage my house in order for keeping my business afloat? That is a very difficult conversation that I'm, you know, that I'm having with people. And that kind of makes me feel very upset because I know that they've invested everything in, in those businesses, uh, in their business. And I know that um, they've, they've done everything they can. And no one should be in a position to kind of remortgage their house to stay afloat. Yeah. Um, because they've got just that much invested in it, their pensions and invested in, in that pharmacy. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's difficult um, to kind of hearing, you know, having these conversations. It seems the frustrating thing of that for me would be you've got 90% funded by the NHS and they're using pharmacies quite a bit. And especially during COVID, pharmacies have shown their value. If you came to me and said, you know, Joe's shoe repair is going out of business and darn it, he deserves to be in business because of all the good work he does. And it seems like he should be in business. It's like, well... I don't know, kind of supply and demand. It would be nice if Joe could still be in the shoe repair business, but that's just not how things are going these days. The problem with pharmacy is that there is such a need and you can see the good that's being done. And you know that if those pharmacies weren't there, it's like, who the hell would take care of this person who, who needs this? They would not be taken care of as well. And that's a frustrating part to seeing businesses going out of business when you know the need is there, but the politicians seem to be looking the other way. Yes, that's that's right. So um, I always say that there are various different aspects to, to pharmacy that sometimes people fail to see. Um, one aspect of our, of our um, profession, um, you know, obviously apart from the biggest part, which is, you know, being healthcare professionals, right, available, offering accessibility and, and you know, and, and, and services to patients, we also are playing a great role within the social care element of things. So a lot of times for those patients who are lonely and don't have anyone to speak with, pharmacy teams are, you know, the people, you know, that offer a shoulder to cry on or coming in speaking um, with, with, with their local pharmacists. So that social element is that just getting out of the house for a lot of older people to just speak to somebody is, is, is that element. And a lot of businesses actually around pharmacies depend on that as well, because um, on the you know in a community or in a high street, when someone gets out to to get their community pharmacy, they're likely to pop into another store to get something else, or you know, so it kind of the economy around that um, community or uh, you know that the high street kind of depends on that pharmacy as well in a sense. So we have a much greater role than sometimes. Those in, in you know, those in position power or decision makers actually see us as, um, and I think that's that's what happens when those pharmacies in the lo in the local areas are no longer there. Then the community gets really badly affected because they have to make longer journeys because they won't have that person to speak with. Um, 
So it has a lot of, and a lot of these pharmacies are situated in areas of deprivation and in areas of, of health inequality. So, you know, the impact of this pharmacist not being there is huge on those communities. Yeah, and it's not just traveling farther for a pharmacy. Once you've gone farther, that connection decreases maybe exponentially. I don't know, but let's just say it does. In other words, if a pharmacist is helping you and they know you're from a town 25 miles away, it's different than them helping you if you live around the corner and maybe the kids went to school together, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. it, it's mm -hmm. not just distance. It's less and less personal care as the distance increases. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm looking at myself. I mean, as a, a pharmacy service user, um, as well as being a pharmacist, but um, I've got uh, a, a toddler, a two-year-old, and sometimes I need to nip into the pharmacy and get some stuff. And sometimes I just need to kind of see things for myself and, and just, you know, read things and all of that. So, you know, just being able to pop to my local pharmacy and, and you know, getting something from yeah. my kid as a mom is, you know, is important. And, you know, I'm a pharmacist. I know, for example, what, um, you know, what things to get for my kid if, if he's, he's got a fever or, you know, so on. But a lot of people are, are not within the healthcare profession and, you know, they pop into their pharmacy, like mothers, young mothers pop into pharmacy and they want to have that discussion with the pharmacist to see what's best for their yeah. um, kids, uh, what products are best and what to do. And if that pharmacy is not there, so what do you do, particularly now? Because um, with, in, in the UK, in England, it's very difficult to see a, a, a GP because of the fact that a lot of GPs are now offering telephone services, mm. um, you know, rather than popping in. This, this happened since the pandemic. And also GPs here are also under a lot of pressure. So getting an appointment to see a GP is very difficult. So again, pharmacy finds itself in that position where, you know, you can provide that sort of advice and support to patients who need to see you face to face. Leila, when you because you are a pharmacist by training. How important is that? Let's say that you knew everything that you know, that somehow you got all the knowledge that you needed without being a pharmacist. It probably helps to say, especially when you're talking to the politicians and things like that, you're like, I'm a pharmacist. I just don't like to throw around titles and things, but that's got to be a pretty important title when you're then talking to a politician so they don't try to one-up you. You can say, look, I I know I've done this. Yes, and it's happened several times in terms of like being in a position when um, you, as a pharmacist, I've been there, I've done that. And um, so when we're talking, for example, about addict services, like, you know, providing, you know, op opiate substitute to, to addicts, Talking from my own experience, for example, how it was and how, you know, what, how that service was and how important that was, <clears throat> what we were providing. Um, you know, being able to say that I used to um, provide the service to over 60 addicts. I used to see supervised methadone um, dispensing, oversee that to, to over, you know, 60 addicts, um, you know, regularly. It's something that I can, I can provide details um, around how they felt, um, you know, and 
when we talk about various different things in terms of like supply of medicines and um, you know the challenges that you can face that you're facing when it comes to, for example, phoning around, ringing around, trying to source the medicine, and and all of this, how much time that takes, or when you see the baskets piling up in terms of like what you need to be um, dispensing, and you know all of that, and the services that you pour when you sit in the consultation room with the patient and you're going through the medicines together with them, or you. Um, discuss about their, their 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 blood pressure or their diabetes and you know all of those things and you know it's not just it's not just saying that it's, it's something that I've experienced myself and I know that with every consultation that I have done there's always been other things as well in terms of like providing that sort of care to the patient and, and that listening ear basically that they open up to you and 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 all of that so I kind of as you said, I, as a pharmacist, I can bring that to the table um, a lot of times. Leela, explain Brexit to me. <laughs> oh my, we could sit here the whole night talking about Brexit. We've got time. <laughs> explain it to me like somebody who went to a high school that maybe didn't have good government or history classes and I never really followed very well and when the front page of the newspaper used to come home i would just sort of like ignore everything on the front <laughs> page and go to you know entertainment or something like that explain it to me and i'm where i want to go with this is how does it affect health choices and things like that so first tell me what brexit was so the, the whole Brexit thing started with a referendum in 2016, um, where people voted um, to come out of the European Union. And so up until then, um, obviously, Britain was part of the European Union. And then the whole process started in terms of like um, coming out. And, you know, that we were, for example, bound by some European laws um, around various different things. And so that kind of gradually. Um, got pushed aside in that, uh, for example, they're now thinking about introducing different laws, you know, that used to be um, European <laughs> laws, mm. so to say. Um, you have to bear with me because it's kind of ex difficult to explain this topic, but... Well, you think it's difficult for someone from England to explain it. Think about <laughs> how hard it is from an old guy from US to understand it. I don't envy you. It's... Um, so, so, so basically for pharmacy, it meant that, um, like everyone else, like every other business in terms of like, um, you know, we, we were bound by some laws, for example, falsified medicines directive, which, um, you know, was some sort of, a, was a European law, but mm. then, um, with, um, UK no longer being part of, um, uh, Europe, then our regulator, medicines health regulatory agency have to now put a different process in place for that. And. Um, there were, for example, laws that affected um, data protection and so on. And some of those laws um, stayed because they came before Brexit. But I mean, anything after that, well, obviously, UK will not be affected um, by that. Um, but so essentially, uh, Brexit impacted on pharmacy, like it impacted on a lot of people's um, lives in that, you know, whatever happens within our political sphere, political um uh, surrounding in terms of like how the government moves forward with regards to various different policies related to Brexit, it affects us all. Um, 
So, you know, so we are not kind of immune as a sector to, um, you know, what's happening with, with, with Brexit. So from our perspective, essentially what we do, um, as we've always done as a sector, is that we put our head down and we make sure that we put patients at the centre of everything that we do, because that is definitely hasn't changed in that patients will always be remaining our focus. Was there any European pharmacy laws that when Brexit came, you were no longer under those laws and now you have to write some of your own? Or did the Brexit not have anything to do with pharmacy law? Um, well, well, yes, there was, for example, the, the, the rules and regulations around falsified medicines directive that was going to be a European directive. Um, and then when the UK left, that obviously kind of no longer applied to UK, but we need to kind of have our own way forward with that um, because UK cannot be the only country not having anything to do with falsified medicines because otherwise it can be the dumping ground for, for falsified medicines. Um, we also have quite a, a lot of problems, for example, in Northern Ireland in, in that, you know, Brexit has caused, for example, medicine supply issues um, there, which is kind of very complicated and, and very um, hard at the moment for um, pharmacies in the Northern, in, in Northern Ireland. Because of maybe different transporting laws and things like that, it's just not yes. as free anymore. Yes, yes. It's, it kind of back, comes back to that uh, European free market and, you know, and, and, um, and obviously the deals that they have been negotiating with um, the EU mm -hmm. um, and how that affects, for example, the Irish border, um, you know, between Ireland and Northern Ireland. So um, I think, uh, yeah, so that has had, you know, a lot of, uh, yeah, that, that has impacted on pharmacies there quite a lot, uh, the medicine supply, which is, um, which is difficult for them. Um, but yeah, generally there was another law that was, that just came out just before Brexit, which was ex extremely complicated. And that was called GDPR. And GDPR uh, was very much around data protection. And what it really meant for pharmacy was that we had to be careful in terms of like whose data we're sharing and what we're doing with third parties, you know, data sharing with third parties or, you know, how we kind of put, you know, how, how data is handled generally in, in pharmacy. So there was very rigorous laws around that. Um, and GDPR was implemented just, just before Brexit. So we are kind of bound by um, those data protection laws that GDPR brought in. You're familiar with the term HIPAA in the U.S.? No, what's that? A similar thing. It's health portability something or other. Same oh, idea. Okay. It was a bigger law that uh, the part that pharmacies see is, you know, privacy of their data and things like that, which yeah. I thought that was overkill for pharmacies because you know as well as I do, especially with independently owned pharmacies, we've been doing patient you know, privacy or trying to be prudent with the information. We've been doing that for hundreds of years, you know, and this law came in, it kind of preached to the choir. The law came in and it 
maybe protect some of the goofy things that big corporations were doing as far as marketing and, you know, paying doctors and all that kind of stuff. But pharmacies weren't doing that anyway. And the problem is when you have some of that enforcement, independent pharmacies are an easy target for inspectors and that kind of stuff. You know, the bigger places, they've got legal teams and it's harder to get in on some of that stuff. So that stuff bothers me when these laws come out and then we're the target and we weren't even the offender in the first place. Yeah. And, and, and as I said, independent pharmacies, you know, don't have that sort of legal thing behind them and don't have that sort of resource behind them to implement some of these laws. Um, and with the GDPR, obviously, it, it puts a very hefty, hefty figure on if you broke the broke the rules, broke the law or whatever happened, then, you know, you would be, you know, paying a hefty sum, uh, which I don't remember off the top of my head, but it, it's, it, it was very rigorous and it was also very difficult to get your head around the rules. I mean, it was kind of a lot of, as, as it tends to be with some of the legal stuff, a lot of jargon involved. So kind of deciphering some of that um, for independence, you know, was not an easy task at all. I remember that I used to go around the country um, talking about GDPR in terms of like how you need to comply with GDPR. And it was one of the most boring oh, <laughs> topics I've ever spoken in my life. <laughs> it's terrible. Then you got to do the training every so often. Yes, yes. I talked to some of the leaders of the American pharmacy groups and they said that sometimes they'll meet with other groups across the countries. Do you do any of that in your role? Are you meeting with any other people in your position? Or I know one of your past positions was more just of the pharmacy association in general. Do you meet with any world people or or is that not a thing? Yeah, occasionally um, we meet with other other people from different countries, um, and it's always very interesting to exchange um, ideas and see how things are in, in in various other countries. And sometimes pharmacy operates in such a different way that you kind of think, "Oh, okay, um, how how does that work?" In some countries, for example, they haven't got the big corporates that we've got here. So the pharmacy model is completely different in that you've got to be a pharmacist and own a pharmacy. Then you've got to, you know, you cannot have more than one pharmacy or, um, you know, if, if if you have more than one pharmacy, then at least you have to be a pharmacist. You know? So, uh, and, and then there are laws in terms of like how they buy and, you know, sell medicines, um, you know, through the, the wholesale or manufacturing and all of that, which is, which tends to be different in some countries. And so, um, I haven't worked in, in Sweden as a pharmacist, for example, when I was working, it, the, the pharmacies in Sweden belonged to the state. So I think that was one of the only countries in the world where the pharmacy, where pharmacies belonged to the state. And um, it was in the early 2000s that they actually opened it up to the private sector. Um, but that's, that was a very different model of, of, of operating. So yeah, it's, 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 it's you know, it, there are loads of various different models um, out there, but within the UK as well, in terms of like, you know, we've got, um, as an organization, we've got various events that we hold for our members and they come together from um, England, from Wales, and sometimes people travel from um, Scotland or Northern Ireland to come in. And even within the UK countries, you can see a lot of differences 
in terms of like operation. For example, you know, the contracts can, the pharmacy contract can vary um, between countries. The pharmacy contract in England, for example, varies to the, co- the contract in, in Scotland. And the Scottish tend to get it better. <laughs> they do a better job with the reimbursement, that contract or? Uh, well, their contract um, is, is, is more pharmacy friendly compared to, for example, England. With the NHS? <clears throat> with the NHS in that they, the services that they offer, um, kind of they're entrusted to deliver services, but they're also compensated for the services adequately. Um, and so pharmacy is, is a kind of a part of, very much part of that valued part of the healthcare sector. Um, but in England, for example, we've had a lot of challenges um, trying to get to, the, to a similar level to, to Scotland. Um, but then again, you look at, for example, Scotland has a, a smaller population. England has a bigger population. But that shouldn't really be an issue in terms of like stopping the progress and recognizing our sector um, going forward. When you say 90% is from the NHS, what's the other 10%? Is that just elective walk-in stuff, not through physicians and things? Is that is that what that is? So, yeah. So, well, over 90%, um, yeah, definitely is NHS. And then, um, obviously, we've got the over-the-counter medicines um, that pharmacies do. And then you've got some provide uh, private services. Um that um, you know, offer private services that could be bringing private income. But yeah, you know, very much over like 90% is NHS dependent. In the U.S., our nemesis is the uh, pharmacy benefit manager because they basically charge the corporations a lot of money, pay us a little bit of that money, and they keep this spread. And... Nobody likes them. At least nobody likes the opaque ones because you can't see what the hell they're doing. It's all secret. It's all smoke and mirrors. In England, when you've got the NHS as 90% of the revenue and you've got the pharmacies, do you have such a middleman? And what is your view of them? Oh, (laughs) so yes. So basically the way it works here is that we've got a contract that it's kind of... um, you know, the supply part of it, um, and then we've got the service part of it. So the supply part of it sits with an organization called the Department of Health and Social Care. So the department works for the for the government in terms of like um, um, compensating for the costs of medicines. And they very much work, for example, in relation to things that have to do with the supply of medicines. But then we've got um, the NHS England, which is an organization that um, works, you know, for the NHS looking after looking after um, affairs basically in England. And they are mainly in charge of um, the services and the direction of travel in terms of like setting the strategy for um, how, for example, healthcare service and pharmacy looks like um, going forward. And that, for example, if, if you are offering a service, it's, um, you know, for example, like a hypertension service or like a diabetes service, very much uh, likely that it's, it's um, commissioned via, the, via NHS England. So they're kind of two different organisations that we are having um, negotiations with, but also 
um, the people with the money or the treasury. So the treasury are in charge of um, the funding and where it goes. Who do pharmacists hate? We, we <laughs> hate the opaque PBMs. Uh, some people hate the uh, corporations that have unrealistic job requirements for the pharmacists, unrealistic uh, metrics and so on. I'm trying to think who else we hate. That's probably the main ones. <laughs> You're right. Okay. Maybe the insurances oh, okay. who haven't, uh, aren't paying for pharmacy services and so on. But this isn't coming from you because you maybe have to be a little bit more politically correct, maybe. But if I come up to the average pharmacist and I say, who do you hate in England that is above you in pharmacy? Who is that? Who are they going to name? I think if you would, well, if, if, if you would ask pharmacists, sometimes they would say to you that they feel let down and they feel, you know, that, for example, NHS England could do a better job at promoting pharmacy and, and, um, and yeah, and, and, um, you know, having that better recognition of, 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 of the sector. So, um, I think, um, I don't know the, you know, to use the word hate, but I think people are disappointed in terms of like the past years in particular, how, um, things have gone in terms of like, you know, pharmacy has had such a, a horrible situation in that, you know, the funding squeeze and, you know, and everything, you know, they have to do more for less, um, and so on. And it's, it's not recognized. And after the pandemic, there were all these nice words in terms of, I guess, you know, pharmacy did this, pharmacy did that, perfect. But, but, but people are not, not seeing that tangible action. Words are lovely. I mean, hearing how lovely pharmacy teams have worked, how much they have put effort in and so on. But if you really, rec if you really want to recognize someone, you don't just say words, you, you actually show it in your action. Who hires you? Who do you answer to? And I know ultimately you can say I answer to the pharmacist because that's where my heart is and all that stuff. But who do you actually answer to? <laughs> I'm not going to say all that fluffy stuff, Mike. <laughs> no <but>. fluffy stuff. <laughs> um, well, um, well, we have a board and uh, uh, my board um, consists of pharmacy owners, pharmacy contractors, our members. So I respond to them. But I also respond to uh, not just those members that I that I represent, but also many times um, independents as as a whole, independent pharmacies as a whole. Sure. But my but 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 I answer to my board. How many are on the board? Um, we've got ten at the moment on the board. Ten um, pharmacy owners. It's nice to know that the board members that are hiring you are in the battle and they know what's going on. They don't have uh, unrealistic expectations, I would say. Would you say that? Um, I'm actually quite um, lucky to be working with a board that is very knowledgeable and they actually help me quite a lot in terms of like bringing things to me um, that they are facing. So everything that we do is not really 
from ivory tower, so to say, thing that's saying, oh, this is what we want, blah, blah. It's all based on reality and what can be achieved and what needs doing. So, um, and everything that we do in terms of like the messaging that we put out there and the work that we do with the media and we are kind of very active in the sphere of national media as an organization because we want to bring what farmers is doing to the public and making politicians see for themselves what is going on. Um, so, you know, everything that we do is not really sitting in an ivory tower, you know, saying, oh, well, this is how it should be. We actually are doing it. We know what the realities are and what we're capable of and what the challenges are and how we need to tackle those challenges. We offer solutions. It's not that we just, you know, as a sector, we just say, you know, we complain and complain and moan and nag. You're not just their psychologist. Exactly. No, we offer quite a lot of, you know, many times we offer solutions in terms of like what we can do, backed up by evidence. Um, but it's just getting through. It's, it's that bit that is very, very difficult. Um, and then I, I, get, I get to hear, well, everybody's in the same boat. All businesses are suffering. Well, <laughs> I completely sympathize with all businesses and I sympathize with everyone. From a pharmacy perspective, we've seen during the pandemic that this sector is needed. It, it needed. Pharmacies are not like any commodity. They are medicines that without, without it, patients cannot function. And the squeaky wheel gets the grease. You know, there might be other companies involved too, but you got to speak up then. Everybody's got a voice. Exactly. And, and, and pharmacy, again, we, we bring a lot of other businesses together. As I said, you know, when you go to see your, your pharmacist, you're likely to pop into somewhere else. And in short, it's frustrating, Mike. Leila, explain the average board member to me. Are they guys? Are they ladies? What would be the average person on that 10-person board? And how many pharmacies would they say they own on average? Oh, uh, I haven't counted how many pharmacies I actually own. I think it's, it's near... 500 or maybe more 600 between the 10 of them between them between the 10 of them yes and the well there are men men you tend to see that here in the uk the vast vast majority of pharmacy owners are men mm. and um so that kind of transpires onto the boards in most organizations you'll find that the the main consistent of the board is 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 male what's the average age would you say the age is different so we've got you know some that are you know young in their very early 40s or, or late 30s um and then you've got some that um are kind of in the 60s so kind of is is a it's a balance when it comes to the age do you notice a difference between a younger, I'm just going to say guy because that's who you're dealing with mainly. Do you notice the difference between the younger guys and the older guys? Are the older guys either more jaded or are they more patient or whatever? Do you see a difference in personalities between a 40-year-old and a 60-year-old when it comes to pharmacy and their communication with you and so on? I think it tends to be that um, everyone, with, again, the good thing with my board is that everyone brings something to the table. So um, the young guys, for example, they can bring things that, you know, you know from technology, for, for example, perspective. They are this you know, generation that they can, you know, they're very good at um, online and, and things like that. And 
then you've got the the older ones that have been in the business for a longer time and they kind of have seen it all. <laughs> so which ones are grumpier? Are the younger ones grumpier or the <laughs> older ones? I think age has nothing to do Come with on. it at all. Come on. No, I they really don't mean call, it. They it don't doesn't. call people grumpy old men for nothing. But you're saying age doesn't have uh, to do with it. I don't think so. It, it's to do with personality. So it's it's to do with, you know, what you're passionate about and what you, you know, you care about and, and so on. I don't think... We can categorize, at least not my board, in terms of like, you know, if you're older, you're more grumpy or, or, or not. I think it's it's more to do with what is more important to them. Um, sometimes a, a particular topic could be of importance to someone that they get passionate about that may not be as important for somebody else. It's hard to tell passion, I suppose, because when you look at somebody, you don't know if their passion's growing or if they were passionate and now they've kind of given up or maybe they haven't given up, but they've accepted some things. It's hard to tell where somebody is. And I guess everybody's on their own trajectory. Yeah, I think um, it's been very difficult. The, the past few years have been very difficult in that, obviously, I think people's energy has been sucked out um, because of the pandemic and, and what we have done. And also the the workforce challenges that we're currently facing and the underfunding and all of that. So I think, um, but people keep, you know, people are passionate about, you know, what they do about their business, about what they've built up over the, over the years. And, and they don't, just don't want it to go under and, and they, they continue being passionate about that. But I think there is a feeling of kind of that sadness people feel, people feel that, you know, over these past few years we've done everything we possibly can um, as a sector everything we've asked we've done it but you know when we started off you mentioned that that respect wasn't there would you say that the respect has gone down or maybe it stayed the same but it hasn't responded to pharmacy's response to COVID we definitely have a very huge respect for the public um, very um, and we do have respect with the politicians and we do have respect with um, those higher up, um, you know, in the decision making process. Um, but it just, you know, and, and they, they know that farms can do it and they, they want to, um, you know, for farms to do more. But it's it's one thing saying that in terms of like that we want pharmacy to do this and that. And another thing to actually to actually allowing pharmacy to do that by, for example, remunerating it properly, by, for example, you know, being honest about the fact that there are these challenges that they need to be supported with. Um, so that's why we, we say it becomes about words rather than really tangible actions um, for the sector. Leila, a lot of times when things don't go the way we want them to go, we like to think of an enemy, you know, somebody who is not letting us get there. And a lot of times the enemy is the person that's making the most money from something. They just look like a greedy enemy. When people think of the NHS not responding well to pharmacy, is there somebody getting rich off of this? Or would they say, well, nobody's getting rich. It's just that the taxes aren't there to fund this. 
our funding is very much sitting, the vast, the majority of it is sitting with the treasury. So it's the treasury that releases the money to NHS. It's the treasury that releases the money to the department. Um, and so it's very much depending on, on the way the treasury is going. Is the treasury the same as the government or do you, yes, do you yes. think of that as being different? No, it's, it's the same as the government. So yeah. the, the, the government... Um, uh, you know, holds holds the treasury, so they essentially control um, in terms of where the money, where the funding is is going. And uh, what we hear a lot of times is that well, everybody wants a piece of the funding. So, um, you know, dentists say we want it, doctors say we want it, pharmacists say we want it, and um, you know, you know, not to mention all the other businesses that kind of say that they're suffering and they want to, you know, for, for example, the hospitality sector may say, you know, we want some money and, you know, other sectors may say they want it, but, and they keep saying that there's simply not enough money in the pot to be able to give to everybody. So what we then need to do, what we're trying to do um, is that offering them the sort of solutions in that, look, if you give pharmacy the money, this will happen. And we can save money. This, you know, if you, which which a lot of times makes sense because, um, well, they make sense really. <laughs> Not just a lot of times, they do make sense. In that if the government are, are having targets, for example, for patients not to end up in accident and emergency or end up in hospitals, with, which which would cost the NHS more money or would 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 go to a doctor uh, to get a service which you could get cheaper in a, in, a, in a pharmacy in terms of like, you know, um, you know, leaving the doctors get on with other things. Well, obviously, that is a no-brainer in terms of like, you know, the value that we offer the NHS. So if you allow us to do it, if you fund it properly, you will see how much benefits you are going to get out of this. I mean, we've, we've, we've demonstrated that, um, that, for example, delivering COVID vaccination or flu vaccination to come into pharmacy can be such a, such a good thing or you know, and, and getting your, for example, participating in the prevention agenda before people um, to get to that stage where they need hospital appointments or seeing, you know, going to accident emergency. So the evidence is there. And so it's just kind of for them to make that decision to actually support this for the, to the best benefit of the NHS and also the patients. It seems like that's a huge benefit and it doesn't seem because i know in the u.s there's all studies like that too you prevented someone from going to the er and that kind of thing it seems like the numbers are there but it doesn't seem like people are responding to those and i don't know maybe it's short-sighted maybe if they see a saving somewhere they don't want to look at the potential what could have been worse maybe they're just jumping on something quickly. I don't know. I don't know why they don't respond to those kind of numbers. Yeah, well, this is something that uh, we don't understand either in terms of like, you know, when you've got this in front of you, this resource in front of you in the form of community pharmacy, where there is so much that they can do and have shown that they can do, um, yet you kind of, and it's the accessibility as well, you know, just being able to walk through your community pharmacy and, and get, you know, your job done. It it it's very valuable, um, but unfortunately, I think it's it's one of those things that, you know, no matter how hard you're working at it, um, I think um, 
Um, yeah, the, I mean, I, I mean, we are we are in, in the same boat. I mean, if you speak to a doctor, they will say the same thing. They will say, "Oh, we are starved of of funding." If you speak to a dentist, they will say to you, "Oh, um, you know, most dentists are now providing provide pri- private services because they don't want to deal with the NHS anymore." You know, because they're not getting funded, um, and people cannot always pay for the private dentist appointments. So everyone will say that, but but in the case of pharmacy, we obviously have that evidence to back it up as well. One of the biggest problems in the U.S. is is the smoke and mirrors, how there's a lot of different definitions of cost, and then there's rebates, and then there's, uh, you know, wholesale and acquisition and all this stuff. And it's all thrown into this mix, and the manufacturers, especially the pharmacy benefit managers, do a good job of throwing these terms around to confuse even the politicians. And then they get confused and then they don't even know exactly what they're voting on because whom do they trust and things like that. When some of these rules get put in place as far as pharmacy reimbursement and so on, I don't hold my breath in thinking that the change is going to come soon, but at least some of that makes things a little bit more transparent so that the politicians can understand it more. In England, do you have all that confusion, all those levels? It seems like maybe it's not quite as confusing because you don't have as many players in it. So we've got the politicians and then we've got the civil servants. So, Mm. you know, we mainly negotiate with the civil servants who then, you know, then discuss with with with, with the politicians. So our main you know, the, the main conversations that we have are with the civil servants. Is um, there someone in there trying to confuse things at all? Is there a weasel in there that's trying to confuse <laughs> stuff or is it pretty straightforward? Uh, well, we've actually, you know, everything is kind of new now. So we've got a set of new civil servants now in post. So, for example, our, our chief pharmaceutical officer is a new person now. Because of Brexit? Um, no, it just just it just just happened, really. You know, the former, the other one retired, and we have now a new chief pharmaceutical officer. And then, um, you know, the people that we are we're talking with at the Department of Health are are new, and you can see they do have, um, you know, many of them do have a positive, um, kind of way of looking at at community pharmacy. They're kind of placating you. They don't come up with anything. Um, well, they, they they hear from us what you know what the case is in terms of like the data that we have to offer, and um, and then they take it to the decision makers in terms of like within 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 the government, and so, um, and so it's it's kind of complicated. It's very complicated in that you know we've got you know so many various different layers um, that we need to go to go through, but we do obviously talk directly to the politicians as well. To you know we do go to the parliament and hold events at the parliament and talk to the politicians. We talk to the ministers and the secretary of states and um, in terms of like trying to push our, our case forward. Um, but there are these barriers there in terms of like at the highest levels of perhaps civil service um, that we still haven't been able to get through perhaps and and you know and convince and try well it's we are we we know what we are about and the evidence speaks for itself um it's just the ch- the culture of leadership that needs changing 
um, I think within within those um, um, organizations. And I think that with any change, it you got to keep pushing. You don't know who's going to break through. You don't know what's going to break through. Exactly. But you you can't choose it ahead of time. You have to hit it on all levels, and then all changes that way. Someone gets a hold of something. Exactly. And that's what keeps me going, Mike, in terms of like, you know, sometimes when you hit a brick wall and you think to yourself, oh gosh, now we're here again. Um, you can't, you know, I, I say to myself, I'll keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing and be patient, keep pushing, keep pushing and um, find a new way of doing it, find a new way of doing it. And, um, you know, one day it'll get through. <laughs> Layla, if I had to pick one person to blame, I don't know England that well, but if I had to pick one person to blame in all this, I'm going to say Prince Harry. <laughs> well, excuse me. He's, he's, he's your, you know, he's in America now, so you should be, you should be his, um, his supporter. All right. My favorite uh, news that I read, I'm on it for way too long every day, even though they got too many damn ads, is Mail Online. Now, that's an England one, right? <laughs> the, the Daily Mail, but it's called Mail Online, right? Yes, yes. So yes. that's my favorite news. And not because I'm like hoity-toity, like I like, you know, British news and stuff. It's just, it's good. It's like a combination of like, you don't know these, but like People Magazine slash USA Today. It's news, but it adds human interest stories and so on. But once in a while, they... When something happens with uh, Prince Harry, is it still okay to call him Prince or did he get that removed? No, it's called Prince Harry, yeah. All right. Prince Harry. Once in a while they have Prince Harry, or sometimes they'll have Prince Harry, and uh, what's her name? Megan? Megan, yeah. Megan. Megan Markle. Megan Markle. And they'll have like 20 stories of them in a row. And I'm like, too much. You can see that they don't like them. Mm. The general public, you... How's Prince Harry? Is is he a traitor? Is he okay? What's the word on the street in uh, in England? Oh, um, you're asking my opinion or generally what the word is on the street? What's your opinion? Um, to be honest, I don't follow. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I do read Daily Mail. I do. Um, I do. Um, I think it's it's the most read paper um, or online um, in the in the UK actually. So it's got a huge readership. Um, I do read, um, you know, obviously I want to keep in the loop in terms of like what's happening and, and you know, what people write, because you can see the commentaries of um, what people write. So it's, it's important. But but when it comes to those stories, um, to be honest, I just skip through them. I don't read them. <laughs> the comments on Mail Online, oh. and I've actually, I don't do this too often, but I actually have a handle. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I've got a <laughs> name and I'll go on there and comment once in a while. Oh, you do? But I'm not going to tell you who I am oh on there. Oh, my God. So we know all these nasty ones coming from you then. Ah, uh, well, yes, yes. <laughs> you got this queen over there. Long time she's been. I think 70 years now? Yeah. Well, no. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, 70 years. Yeah, 70 years Jubilee. They don't do anything, right? They just look fancy. They just represent England. But their role is kind of not being involved in any politics, really, and just kind of represent as such. Um, but I'm not the best person to ask about this because I'm not really, I don't follow stories about royals and all of that. Um, because, I, I, you know, having grown up in Finland, it's just, 
We haven't been much into royalty. When I look at my kids, for example, in school, um, well, they're taught about it right from the from a young age in terms of like about the queen and about um, you know how to write to the queen and you know stuff like that. Um, so it kind of it is Im embedded in them as they grow up. Um, but this wasn't the case with me in terms of when I when I was growing up. This wasn't really something that I had followed, and so um, so as such, I don't really pay that much attention. <laughs> you know the Kardashians. Um, I think everyone in the world knows uh, about the Kardashians. Following the royals is kind of like following the Kardashians, right? It's kind of like a gossip, gossipy thing. Definitely, um, you know, it's it's one thing that you know the me media have something to write about as well. You know, yeah. Occasionally, when they're on out of, out of stories, they can put some papers, um, you know, and write something about about uh, you know the royal family or, or or so on. But as I said, when I go to Daily Mail, I mean, right now in the UK, so much is happening in terms of like you know with uh, the cost of living, energy prices, war in Ukraine. Um, then you've got, you know, everything else that that is going on that you just, there's too, there's loads of stories to read. Um, so I kind of flipped through the other. <laughs> you know what else is too much besides the, uh, the queen is, um, soccer. We just don't care foot, you know, English football. We just don't care about that over here. Oh no, it's lovely. Football is is in in the in the DNA of. Uh, we don't care about that over here. Well, equally, I don't understand. I mean, again, from um, um you know, the, the, in the UK, people like rugby. Um, I don't understand that game, but it's a big deal in America, isn't it? Rugby or America? Well, football. no, rugby's not that huge. I think it's maybe um. Australia is that rugby? Do they do a lot of rugby? They do there rugby. New Zealand does. Yeah, yeah. You do baseball, don't you? Baseball and basketball. We are do huge. baseball. Baseball. That's the American pastime. Baseball and apple pie. When you think about the American way, it's baseball. Yeah. Is it more popular than basketball? Which one would you say is basketball? Uh, it's about the same. Probably basketball, baseball, and football are about the same. Mm. And then there's you know other stuff. People are going to argue me, but there's NASCAR and hockey and all that. But the big three are probably baseball, football, and basketball. Yeah. We share more in common with you guys as independent pharmacy owners than we differ. Much more in common. What words would you give to pharmacists? And I know this is a time of frustration and a time of sadness. What would you leave pharmacists with at this point? I think um, as pharmacists, we should really be proud um, of our sector and our profession. I think um, one thing that we have we have seen over the past few years is how important of a role our profession has within the society. We are part of the fabric um, of people's lives and society. And so we should really be proud of that. And when we don't get the recognition, which is very hard sometimes, because obviously we work really, really hard and we are right at the forefront of the healthcare. Um, we shouldn't let it get us down um, and we should come back up and be proud. And, and a lot of times, you know, it's those patients and, and, you know, that value us that we should think about in terms of like what they say to us should really matter a lot and so 
And we know that they do value us. We know that the work that we do for them is is very important. Um, I just need to hammer that home to those in position of power and, and the decision makers to make sure that they see things the way the constituents and their the public see it. Um, so that's the challenge that I have, for example, with with my role. Boy, Leila, it's a pleasure reaching out to you across the pond, as they say. And as we talked, we don't know when the voice of pharmacy, I mean, it has broken through, but it continues to break through. And we don't know where that is. So I appreciate you coming on and talking about this and keep doing what you're doing. It's been a pleasure, Mike. Thank you for inviting me to this. It's been lovely chatting to you about pharmacy in the UK. (laughs) Thanks, Layla. We'll be in touch. Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes.